1: Takis, intern at Lawfare with an episode of Rational Security for August 6th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled The Third Times a Charm Edition. This week, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein sat down with Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes to discuss former President Donald Trump's indictment for conspiring to overthrow the results of the 2020 election, the odds of Congress renewing Section 702, the legitimacy of stories concerning Hunter Biden's alleged criminal activity, and more. This is Rational Security.
2: Guys, I'm really sleepy. Last night was a lot. It was
0: a long night. It was awesome though. Your definition of awesome is very different than my definition of awesome. (laughs) No, the the definition of a good day is when something big happens and you do awesome work on it. And that was yesterday.
3: Perhaps. I then had a toddler freak out on me from three hours from the hours of 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. So so it was just like being at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Less Fox News on in the background.
4: While we were waiting for the indictment to to come down, I was actually on a plane with a toddler who was screaming over and over again, I want my treat, which I felt like really captured the vibe in a number of different ways. Was there ketchup thrown at the wall? There was no ketchup that I saw.
2: You know what? Good, good for the parent for not giving in. You can't negotiate with terrorists.
4: I mean, I don't know. They did stop screaming, so perhaps at some point the treat was bestowed.
2: <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's not the right philosophy on an
4: airplane, island, and It makes me not <laughs> want to fly with right. you. <laughs> no,
2: that's, that's probably that's 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 probably right. No, I'm taking it. I'm taking a flight with my toddler in a month, and uh, we're we're currently in the uh, the end stages of training him to be able to watch an entire Disney movie in one go. Oh yeah.
0: Mm. So you know. Here are some good movies for toddlers. Uh, Nosferatu. (laughs) (laughs) The the Seventh Seal. What's that one with the train just coming right
3: at the camera and everybody jumps (laughs) out of the way? Yeah. Um, Also – The birds.
0: uh, (laughs) No, no, no. Toddlers don't like the birds but they love uh, vertigo.
2: (laughs) Actually, I believe that. (laughs) Hello,
3: everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back here in the IRL studio with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. In the virtual studio with our third co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And thrilled to be joined, as always, by co-host emeritus Benjamin Wittes, here in the real studio to talk over some of the week's big news. And oh, my goodness, what big news we have this week, Ben. Because it finally happened, didn't it? Yo, it it, it happened—the big one. We've been teasing it for a couple of weeks now in anticipation. As has Special Counsel Jack Lark, Jack Smith. Excuse me, Jack Clark, Jeff Clark, Jack Smith. All the na- all the very common white guy names all blending together in one melange. Uh, yeah, it's uh, been a big week in news. We were up very late last night, ta- writing about it and talking about it. Uh, all of us were, um, but we're excited to be back with you all talking about it today. And what we are calling the third times a charm edition, because indeed, this is our third at bat in
0: indicting a former president, specifically one spe- very special former president, former President Donald Trump. I think, you know, it's worth pointing out that Trump has now, since you can't you know, divide by zero. He has uh, uh, been indicted infinitely more times than all other presidents combined. Ulysses S. Grant did get that speeding ticket. <laughs> that it entirely. was a speeding ticket, but you know, I mean, we now have three indictments against one president, and the sum total of the rest of the presidency has produced zero indictments. It is pretty exceptional,
2: actually. Our other presidents have just not been trying hard enough.
4: Well, Warren Harding went and died before he could be indicted.
2: Ulysses S. Grant was was uh, arrested for speeding, yeah, while and, president. And so, he, so that's and, something. And also, he lied under oath in a in a
0: deposition in uh, in in a criminal case, but you know, got away with it. I still like him. <laughs> it's
2: well, all I the gotta say, the, hair, the really. both sizing of the Trump indictment has begun real early here, and wasn't even <laughs> me that brought it up.
3: <laughs> we'll get there. Well. Let us get to our topics for this week as we're before we get into it for real, because our first topic is indeed exactly the big news event we've been talking about, as I, we are calling it topic one. So that's what the Insurrection Act is for. <laughs> Former President <laughs> Trump has been indicted for conspiring to overthrow the results of the 2020 election, including through the insurrection on January 6th. And while they haven't been charged, the indictment named six co-conspirators who were allegedly willing to go to the mat for him, including former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, who in one of the darkest moments in the indictment suggested that the Insurrection Act would be used to deploy the military against anyone who protests the Trump administration's actions. What does the indictment mean historically and politically and
0: legally and where will the trial go from here? Can I just say before we go on that so that's what the Insurrection Act is for? Is gonna be like my slogan whenever I don't like something. Yeah. You know, you, you know, hey, so and so was mean to me. That's what the insurrection act is for.
3: So rarely do quotes from uh, quotes from indictments end up knitted onto pillows. <laughs> Cross stitch. I'm excited. I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> Topic two, the spy who nagged me. The intelligence community is knocking on Congress's door, hat in hand, asking once again for the renewal of the controversial but essential Section 702 surveillance authority. But odds seem slimmer than ever this year, not least because the political dynamics around federal law enforcement intelligence have changed so dramatically over the course of the Trump years. What are the odds of renewal and what conditions are likely to come with it? And topic three, Hunter and the Fox. President Biden's son, Hunter, who has wrestled with substance abuse and mental health issues, is back in the news for at least attempting to plead guilty to an array of criminal offenses and for congressional testimony, alleging that he parlayed access to his father into lucrative business deals the stories have become a mainstay in conservative media circles and right-wing attacks on President Biden. But how much is smoke and how much is fire? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to blow the big cannon. Not not the baby cannon because that's not your thing. That's somebody else's thing. But let's get us started with the big event.
2: One of those big anti-aircraft guns are like a battleship. Um so yeah, where, where to begin? I mean, f- first I will I will flag that obviously, Lawfare is doing an enormous amount of super super detailed coverage on this. We published uh, three really in depth pieces on the indictment uh, on uh, Tuesday night. Uh, there's a podcast uh, that's also come out uh, on Wednesday, so the day before. You've listened to this. We'll be doing a lot of really detailed coverage on this. So I don't necessarily want to get sort of super into the legal weeds now. You know, we'll have plenty of time to do that. Um, but let me just sort of really briefly describe the kind of highlights of the indictment. And then I'd just like to go around and ask you all just kind of like for your thoughts. I mean, we've all been waiting for this for years. This is a huge amount of what we think about. It's finally happened. And I would just love to sort of get your kind of off the cuff uh, reactions now that we've had a night to sleep on it, even if it was a a somewhat shortened, shortened night, uh, given how late we were all up um, writing copy. So on Tuesday, special counsel Jack Smith announced that uh, president Trump has I've been indicted for the second time uh, by the the government, uh, the third time uh, now, generally, and almost certainly not for the last time, given the uh, likelihood of a Georgia indictment later this summer. Uh, This is the first indictment that uh, finally treats Trump's conduct leading up to and on January 6th, his campaign to essentially steal the 2020 election through a number of means, trying to pressure various states to. Um, cancel or reverse or substitute their electors, uh, trying to pressure Vice President Pence to throw out electors during Congress's counting of the Electoral College votes. The diamond goes into enormous detail about uh, Trump's state of mind throughout this time period, making it very clear that Trump was told repeatedly by many of his closest associates that he had not and that the election was not stolen, that he had lost it, that there were no legal avenues going forward, The indictment uh, mentions a variety of uh, co-conspirators. It does not name them because they are not yet indicted, but it's very clear who they are, talking about uh, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, and others.
3: With one exception, with one wild card.
2: With one wild card. Joker's wild. Six is wild. Co-conspirator number number six. Yep. And then brings charges under uh, three statutes. The first is uh, 18 U.S.C. 1512. Uh, which criminalizes corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. This is referring, obviously, to Congress's attempt to certify electoral college votes. And this is a, uh, statute that has been used in, um, you know, hundreds of the ongoing January 6th prosecutions. Another statute, uh, that's at issue is, um, 18 USC 371, uh, which is, the statute that criminalizes conspiracies to uh, commit offenses against the United States or to defraud the United States. The theory here being that uh, Trump improperly subverted the executive branch to carry out uh, this corrupt campaign to overthrow uh, the election, and that is a kind of fraud on the government. Uh, And then finally, and perhaps most unexpectedly, because we haven't really uh, seen this um, yet, and it's not been talked about too much, is 18 U.S.C. Section 241, uh, which stems from the uh, 1870 Enforcement Act uh, passed during Reconstruction, largely to allow the federal government to go after the KKK, which was then, along with other groups, waging a campaign of terror against Black Americans trying to vote. The uh, statute makes it a criminal offense to conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or to intimidate any person in the free exercise of enjoyment of any of their rights or privileges under the law or the Constitution. And uh, here the idea seems to be that uh, by trying to subvert the election, President Trump undermined the public's right to vote and to have their vote counted. So you know, that's where we are. That's the indictment. So Ben, let me turn it over to you. What have you been thinking about?
0: Well, it's very rare that you get an event where you say, OK, this is going to be the first sentence of a person's obituary. And you know, that's what we got. Yesterday, uh, Donald Trump was already a president who had a most extraordinary presidency, either because you think he made America great again or because you you think he was the most dangerous demagogue we've ever had in the office but yesterday's events are not a matter of opinion; he is now the uh, first and I hope only president ever to be charged by the government he led with effectively trying to overthrow the constitutional order and that is an extraordinary fact. Uh, the evidence that the government is prepared to present is amazingly diverse. It's like an octopus. It has you know uh, a head which is Donald Trump and then it has – you know, six or eight arms that are the individual narrative threads of the conspiracy and the evidence supporting each of those arms is of just unusual magnitude and power. And so I am kind of – though there are relatively few facts in that indictment of which we were not previously aware, none of which is game-changing – I am kind of in awe of it as a, you know, sort of def- def- not a defining moment of who this person is in American history and, you know, as a – I think I was not the first but the second. The first person was John Bellinger to write that Donald Trump was a national security threat. You know, I look back and I say – You know, since 2015, a lot of people at Lawfare, including uh, all of the four of us, have been in different ways talking about this concern, this anxiety um, about the relationship between this person and the office that he was going to hold, which he eventually did hold. And the subject matter of the work of this site, and I, I think you know, yesterday is a a, a real vindication of that concern um, in a in a in in the deepest way that I uh, can can imagine.
4: I have to say, I am kind of pleasantly surprised that the Justice Department actually went there. When news first broke of the Mar-a-Lago investigation and and prosecution, um, I was sort of idly wondering whether the Justice Department might take that opportunity to kind of indict Trump on uh, the classified documents probe, sort of get an indictment out of the way and then punt on January 6th. Uh, which I think would sort of be the most DOJ thing ever, you know, kind of dodging the the difficult questions of uh, accountability for for presidents in favor of focusing only on post presidential conduct. Um, but you know, they they really did it. They went there, and it's not you know focused on material that's kind of adjacent to January six. I was actually surprised to see that there wasn't anything in here on. Uh, wire fraud charges since it's been reported that the special counsel's office was investigating potential wire fraud uh, in the Trump campaign's use of of fundraising on basically false pretenses of election fraud. Um, perhaps that may be coming in the future. We don't know. Um, but this indictment really you know, goes directly to what Trump did in the run-up to January 6th, and it also goes directly to what he said on the 6th itself. Alan, I know you had written a bit about uh, the prospect of DOJ charging Trump for incitement uh, for his speech at the ellipse they obviously didn't go that route and we can talk about why um but using these various conspiracy charges they do incorporate what he said on the ellipse and charge him for that and i think that i was just really struck by the fact that uh DOJ or, or the special counsel's office rather decided to take the plunge. Maybe that's a, a mark in favor of the special counsel regulations. I don't know if uh, Bain Justice would have been quite so willing to uh, take this this big a step. Um, but I think, you know, there, there's a extremely long road ahead. This is going to be an absolute mess of a trial. The appeals are also going to be an absolute mess. It's going to be a complete nightmare for everybody. Um, but it's a really important step, and I'm very glad they did it.
2: Yeah. And just to quickly pick up on, on the point you Quinta made about charging Trump or, or not charging Trump for the insurrection itself. Yeah, this is something that I've written a lot about with uh, Judge Sugarman, who's at uh, BU. And you know, look, I, I still think that a prosecution of Trump for inciting the crowd on January 6th is legally possible. But I also recognize, and, and I, I think Jed agrees, that it is, it is a risky thing. And um, I think this is a... Pretty good compromise, which is to say, you're not charging him for the January 6th speech and insurrection um, and inciting a, a riot specifically, but you are clearly foregrounding that. You're making still that part of the case that is going to be part of the trial, and you are still holding him accountable for for that. Um, so, you know, wh- while I might like to see an incitement charge in addition to these other charges, I, I do think that um, this is a, a good and appropriately cautious um, way of. Holding Trump to account, not just for sort of the private machinations that he was doing, but for getting in front of this armed, unruly crowd and telling them to march to the Capitol and fight like hell.
3: Well, and I do think it's worth thinking about the trade offs that are in this indictment because they are some very real ones, and I think they tell us a little bit about what is likely to be the trial strategy moving forward, um, or at least give some hints at that. Uh, you know, in one hand, they focused on three different sorts of conspiracies that are very similar in parameters. They focus on kind of different aspects of the scheme to disrupt the 2020 elections, Um, although there's substantial overlap. One's on disrupting a federal proceeding. You know, that could be any number of proceedings that were targeted by this broad conspiracy. Another one's on defrauding their right to vote. That can be A number of aspects of ways of interrupting the results that arrive from somebody's right to vote because that has been defined to include the right to have your vote counted effectively essentially. So that could cover all sorts of acts. So you're seeing this kind of broad set of facts laid out. They've excluded some of the more constitutionally contentious claims. Maybe they could have proven, maybe they couldn't have, but they clearly don't want to get in a fight over them and they are instead incorporating the, uh, you know, I think moral weight and the factual weight of them, the underlying violence, the threatening into the narrative and making it part of the conspiracy, which I don't think is unfair. Like it very clearly was a tool used part as part of the conspiracy, at least by Trump himself and a few of his co-conspirators, if not all six of them. But their, their trade-offs are kind of interesting. And, and the barrier for all these cases was always going to be the mens rea element. How do we show Trump knew what he was saying was false for the kind of fraudulent elements of the conspiracy and knew what he was doing was intentionally trying to upend the process in a way that's unlawful? And it's interesting in that they have a lot of hints of that here. They are able to get one step closer to Trump than the January 6th committee did, mostly through... Kind of just a handful of cases but important cases of kind of quotes from senior Trump advisors as far as I can tell. Pat Cipollone, White House Counsel, Deputy White House Counsel, a few other senior folks who presumably may have been a little bit more guarded about their communications with the president before the Congress where executive privilege concerns are more prominent, appear willing to testify or have testified to the grand jury about some of these statements that are quoted here. And they're really important to establishing the men's – really important to saying, look, Trump, all of your career lawyers, people who are supposed to be advising you, told you this was unlawful and incorrect and fraudulent. The only reason you were able to move forward is that you had these other band of cherry-picked lawyers who you cherry-picked specifically because they were willing to say these things to you, right? So we know Trump is going to try and shift – I'm sure this was easy for the, that Jack Smith to think about this well. He's going to try and shift blame to his lawyers by saying, oh, I thought all this was above board. I thought this, this was honest and accurate. And they really have built the case that you can't do that on this can, on this on the slate of facts. That also means that this establishing this mens rea, it's kind of a volume game, right? Like to prove any one of these conspiracies, they only have to show a scheme and one overt act. There are tons of overt acts in here, um, and I think laying on that on that thick is both to insulate against potential privilege issues and other issues that might interrupt specific pieces of evidence, right? And it also helps communicate the gravity and scale of the scheme and of the effort in a way that I think is pretty compelling, right? It's a different way to prosecute a conspiracy. Often a conspiracy you you pick, even if there's a whole universe of crimes, you pick a handful of acts and focus on those because it's really hard to prove the whole universe. They seem like they're going to argue the whole universe here. Among other things, I think that means this is going to be a really long trial with a lot of witnesses because it's hard to imagine you can talk about – you know. conspiracy that has five different threads, one of which is divided into seven different states without having at least one witness for each thread in each state. And that itself is a two-week trial, right? Uh, At least, probably longer. So it's going to be a major, major undertaking on the actual trial front, even though they seem to have made a real effort, I think, to limit the pretrial delay. So it means we're going to have weeks of of testimony and evidence and reporting on that. And so this story is going to I think, but really become a real center of gravity for the media for an extended period kind of in the middle of, depending on when it gets scheduled, either the primary election or the general election, somewhere on our 2024 election scheme. Long story short, I mean, it's, it's setting up like a pretty interesting future and, and positioning itself to be like a... You know, the major event, I think, moving forward of all these trials. Um, I've always thought the Mar-a-Lago case was the more open and shut, easy to prove because of this mens rea element. And I still kind of think that's true. I mean, the fact that's being tried in Florida, I actually think it does handicap it uh, and that this one's being tried in D.C. a little bit more because of unpredictability of the judge and the jury. But if they really can get these people, this testimony in from these officials talking about what Trump believed and what they told Trump, the circumstantial evidence of his mental state is pretty compelling, I think. Maybe I have— Am too biased. That reflects my bias. You never have open and shut evidence of mens rea, but it's a really compelling volume of evidence by witnesses who, by the way, are mostly Republican officials, and therefore are hopefully going to be seen as pretty credible by a lot of people, including potentially Republican voters. Um, So you know, it's going to be an interesting thing to see how this comes together. But they seem to have really thought about a lot of just compelling elements, and it's just I I see the trial strategy that seems to be going on. It's a one that clearly is trying to take into all these variables into account and I don't know it strikes me as one that I'm optimistic about um, maybe maybe the best you could do in this difficult circumstances
0: yeah a couple things uh, so first of all I very much agree that a huge percentage of the value uh, the the marginal value of this indictment over the January 6th committee involves the Delta between what the committee can get out of senior White House officials who have executive privilege assertions or attorney-client privilege assertions and what federal prosecutors can get out of them. So, you know, Mark Meadows did not testify before the committee. He did testify before the grand jury. Pat Cipollone, Pat Philbin – Uh, testified before the committee but uh, did not answer questions about what legal advice they gave to the president. They did answer those questions before the grand jury because there's no government attorney-client privilege before a grand jury in the D.C. Circuit at least. Um, A variety of other – Mike Pence refused to testify before the – January 6th committee, but he testified before the grand jury. There are a whole series of these people and this is uh, the group of people who are most apt to speak to the president's state of mind. The second point relates to uh, uh, the point that Alan made about the incitement question and Scott and Quinta both broadened uh, with respect to – other components, I think this refusing to cut the legs off the octopus and deal with them separately but dealing with the whole thing as a unified conspiracy uh, is part of what makes it powerful actually. So yes, you could lop off the leg that's the incitement to violence and then you would have a big First Amendment question. You'd have, But you would also only be dealing with that component. You could also lop off uh, a bunch of questions related to wire fraud uh, and you know that's a way of dealing with the lies but the lies aren't also are not separately charged. They're an animating feature of the conspiracy. You could also lop off the pressure on the vice president, right? But instead what – Smith does in this indictment is he alleges one grand objective or three grand objectives. It's the same fact pattern supporting the three objectives. And all of these are narrative threads in support of that rather than a a kind of isolated behaviors. And in this, he is very much following the January 6th committee, which that is very much the story that they told as well. Among other things, I think the narrative shape of this indictment is very much a credit to the congressional investigation that preceded it.
2: Before we move on to the next topic, I, I do want to talk about the the implications politically um, for the election, and in particular the reaction from the, so the right side of the the aisle, both in Congress uh, and and in politics, and also among the electorate. So you know we're 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 getting some responses that are filtering in. You have everything from Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, who is saying all sorts of nonsense about, uh, weaponization and how bad this indictment is to, uh, DeSantis, who is doing his incredibly awkward, sort of trying to talk out of both sides of his mouth because he desperately needs Trump to, um, be put in prison if he's going to win the, uh, the Republican nomination to other Republican candidates, especially the ones that are, uh, polling in the 0.1% and below, um, who are more than happy to go out and talk about how, uh, terrible, uh, Trump is. At the same time, you had a, a recent poll that, uh, came out this week that made a lot of news that despite all of Trump's legal woes um and this was done before the indictment but still after the uh the other two indictments that Trump has already uh had he's neck and neck with with Joe Biden again unclear how useful a head to head poll is you know 18 months before an election my assumption is that you know ultimately the 20 30% of hardcore MAGA trumpers is enough to ensure his lock on the GOP to cow GOP elites and that, you know, until he is literally in jail, and even maybe not then, nothing will be able to unlodge Trump's hold on the Republican Party, not even this indictment, not even this criminal trial. Am I being overly pessimistic?
4: No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I- sweet <laughs> look, I think that... <laughs> we've we've gotten into this dynamic in the last few years where we're stuck in a political problem but Trump's opponents often have a tendency to kind of default to whatever potential institutional savior presents itself so first it was Comey then it was Mueller then it was Congress in the form of the various impeachment investigations now it's Jack Smith and in all of those previous instances the institution did its job and wasn't able to fully resolve the problem because it's a political problem. Um, And then people got very disappointed and bitter and felt that, you know, Mueller had failed and so on and and so forth. And I think that it's maybe a better approach to say, look, you know, this indictment does matter, but it's not going to solve the issue because this is a democracy. And the problem is that a significant component of American voters – Uh, strategically distributed (laughs) across a number of states that play an outsized role in the electoral college Um, will support this guy no matter what he does. Um, But it still does matter. And I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, that those voters were never going to abandon Trump. The voters who are more interesting to keep an eye on are the The suburban moms. Um, I hate to stereotype, but I do think that the polling shows that that's true. You know, the people who in 2020 just couldn't stomach voting for Trump again, Uh, the people in 2022 who maybe voted for, say, Republican senators and gubernatorial candidates, but just couldn't bring themselves to vote for a election denier secretary of state or something like that that's a contingent that we have seen is persuadable and can be moved on this and i do think that as scott says having this indictment and this trial in the news constantly over the next year may really move the needle for those folks i don't know i think you only put it like this I think you have to have real politics brain rot to think that being indicted three times, one time for attempting to overthrow the government, possibly a a fourth time coming up, is going to help you in a general election.
3: So, you know, I I remain, you know, unconvinced that the status quo of the Republican primary is inevitably the state it will be when the voting starts happening. Me too. Now, it doesn't mean it won't be. But the, all we know, you know, this is an unprecedented circumstance. I think it's dangerous to make a lot of strong predictions about where things go. The one thing we do know from Republican primaries that are open, query whether this one's, you know, this one is less open than truly open primaries, but it is still nominally open in that there is not technically an incumbent, right? Um, and it's certainly there are enough candidates as if there were more of an open race than a closed race. They're highly chaotic. Um, at this point, before the last several general elections, we didn't Really know who the nominee were and the numbers changed dramatically, particularly after you started having debates, um, which get a lot of media coverage and show a lot of head-to-head conflict, um, particularly after you start seeing major media attention beginning to turn to the race, particularly when you have major media events bringing attention to different actors. And that's all primed to happen in the months to come. Um, you know, we know in this first Republican debate, it's at least going to have Chris Christie on the stage, who has been very open at, about attacking Trump, including about these issues. And this is a lot of new fuel to, to throw on the fire for that. We don't know what tack like Doug Burgum is going to take. Who is another
0: person who appears poised to have made. For the I forgot
2: debate. about him. I know, but you know, <laughs> he's literally who is that? <laughs>
0: Scott just made him up. He's a governor of a state adjacent to yours.
2: North Dakota. OK, I literally did not know the answer <laughs> to that question. And I'm a reasonably informed upper midwesterner. <laughs> Guys, like, are you are you listening to yourselves?
3: <laughs> no, I mean, like. Bergamentum, <laughs> baby. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, look, actually, like, if you listen to whether it's, you know, 538 podcast or a lot of political, a lot of people are saying. Burgum has more potential than people anticipate because he's a self-funded billionaire and he has very
2: low name recognition. (laughs) Scott, I I have never loved you more than I love you in this moment. His advantage is that no
3: one knows who the hell he is. I know.
2: (laughs) I mean that actually is a political advantage.
3: Because you're you're building off people's <laughs> priors, and you get free guys. I mean, like this is actually what professional people who work in politics are saying. <laughs> and honest. how we good are I those just, people did at their I jobs? Giant I mean, you know, can, sorry. I mean, you're. I mean, like guys. I mean, I'm not making this up. Like this is actually like a way people think about these campaigns is that name recognition can be a double edged sword because it means people have a lot of built in priors. But like Bergam, they say, well, look, he's a guy who's popular in his state. He's a billionaire. And he's got low national name recognition, meaning if he's on a debate stage, all of a sudden his name recognition soars. He can shape a positive narrative around himself. And that's how you've seen dark horse candidates rise before, like Barack Obama. Like he had low national name recognition. It's true though. Like that's that's kind of the logic of this. And there's a bunch of different narratives here uh, about like the ways we've seen this actually happen before that, you know – we just don't. I, I think it's. I think it's naive to pretend like the state of things now is inevitable, and it bakes into this kind of you know idea that the life experience of the last six years is some sort of unified, pheno- you know, Trump phenomena that is unshakable, and I just think we have to have a little more you know, actual nuanced view of history as institutions to to think about how different things play out. Now, does that mean Trump's not going to be the nominee? No, it doesn't. Like he's got unique vulnerabilities that need somebody to capitalize on them. I think the fact that you have multiple people on the debate stage, some of whom are positioned to criticize him, um, even Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and other people have been moving towards a more critical position um, in recent weeks uh, and may use the debate stage as an opportunity to lean in that, particularly if, like DeSantis, they see their campaign flagging badly and funders running away from them. You know, these are the competitive dynamics. This is what a competitive political campaign looks like. Uh, and so I think we have to wait to see how it shakes out before we make assumptions about where this goes one way or the other. But this creates a, a real opportunity structure for people opposing Trump. Uh, the question is just whether they'll be able to take advantage of it. It's going to be jab It might be Jeb. Jeb, who was at this time before the 2016 election, one of the leading pollers. So things change. Scott,
2: we don't deserve you as a co-host. Me
3: too. It's too
2: pure of spirit. I
3: guess aren't aren't giving Doug Burgum the credit he deserves, who is actually – again, he made the debate stage ahead of Mike Pence, the former vice president. So the that is more about
2: Mike
4: Pence. It might say
3: more about Mike Pence. But it means that maybe this is not the representative audience to gauge who, who has sway in the Republican primary. Nobody has ever thought this being about this Doug room.
0: Current Burgum enough to decide they want to hang him. <laughs> oh,
2: that's harsh. That's harsh. Ooh, OK. All right.
3: Well, talking from six conspir- about six co-conspirators, let us go to section seven hundred two, <laughs> uh, because <laughs> seven hundred and two, seven hundred and two, that was really bad. That was pretty bad transition <laughs> uh, to go back to our bad segues uh, theme of yesteryear. But it's a hard, it's a tough one, guys. We're working on very little sleep. Um, we are amidst the background of this very important political debate and important political indictments. There's another big policy conversation, very important in the national security realm taking place right now, and that is the debate over the renewal of Section 702, an important surveillance authority uh, that essentially allows for the collection of electronic communications uh, of non-U.S. nationals, but sometimes pulls in certain U.S. national communications as well that can then be queried by uh, law enforcement officials and intelligence officials for uh, certain purposes within certain procedural safeguards that have proven to be perhaps not everything we wanted them to be in the past few years, but nonetheless, do exist and and FBI has taken – and other agencies have taken certain steps to strengthen them. But we are uh, debating whether to renew this statutory authority which periodically sunsets Um, and it's a new era than the last time we had this debate. It was a very controversial move last time but did eventually move forward more or less as intended without major, major changes to the program as I can recall, uh, although I may be off on that. But since then, we have a kind of revolution in how particularly – people on the political right view the intelligence community and federal law enforcement 6-7 years ago they were some of the strongest boosters of the you know need to address national security concerns by those agencies during the Trump years those agencies came under heavy political criticism for perceived bias towards the Trump administration for allegations of everything from manufacturing investigations and leaking information and you know making up things like russian collaboration things like that that are you know, loosely tethered to facts, but there are some legitimate underlying criticisms about how certain authorities and certain steps were taken that are at, 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 that are mixed in with a lot of other allegations there. Um, and long story short, it's really changed the political dynamics around these agencies and their mission. Now you have kind of centrist slash establishment Republicans and Democrats, um probably being the ones most leaning towards supporting renewal of this measure in one form or another. And you see critiques coming from the kind of civil, ter- civil libertarian left and right um, objecting to it and this kind of Trumpian thread that intermingles with the kind of libertarian right um, critiquing it as well saying, well, not only is this a civil liberties concern, it's also specifically a problem for people who, who – for our community of political you know, f- fellow travelers who think the federal government is out to get us. Ben, you have been a commentator on 702 for the last – Two renewal cycles, three renewal cycles, if not longer, uh, much longer than that, really.
0: Yeah, well, really since seven hundred two. Since yeah. seven hundred two was the Stellar Wind warrantless wiretapping program.
3: Fair, yes, exactly. You you've been with us from inception. Tell us about you know your sense of the political dynamics around this debate and the substantive dynamics, the policy equities. You know what are the trade offs here, and, and how is your own thinking if it has kind of shifted or adjusted at all over the past few years, which has been look, let's be honest, a paradigm-shifting couple of years for a lot of us on a lot of fronts. Uh, Does that really enter into this debate for you as much as it is for people in a different
0: part of the political spectrum than you? Yeah. So let's deal with the merits first because they're easier actually. Uh, The merits of 702 uh, have mostly not changed over the last several years. Um, 702 – there has always been a left critique of 702 joined by – some Justin Amash-like members of the libertarian right that held that it was sort of a uh, backdoor domestic spying program, Uh, these uh, criticisms have always been wrong uh, and they remain wrong and the program has shown itself over a long period of time now to be – an essential one that is a a wild overachiever in the uh, Federal Intelligence Authority Department. Some enormous percentage of the president's daily brief is composed of or contributed to by 702 material. Uh, This is one of the most important authorities that the government has and it has not led to. Uh, substantial civil liberties problems. Uh, That said, the one thing that complicates this picture is that uh, the FBI has had repeated, let's say, compliance failures with aspects of uh, 702. All of these have been caught internally and uh, through the complex combination of internal executive branch and uh, FISA court oversight but they are real and some of them are are pretty bad and they affect large numbers of queries and uh, uh, actions taken by the bureau. So I think by and large it, this is the same debate that we have every five years on the merits. Uh, we'll come to what it turns on in a moment but, uh, what has changed is not really the merits of the issue. What has changed is that the traditional debate, which is a debate on the merits between the left and the rest of the political spectrum, uh, has been joined by – I don't know what to call them the, – the outpatient caucus of the of the right, which is obsessed with a series of paranoid fantasies related to the Russia investigation related to unmasking, related to the supposed weaponization of law enforcement and intelligence against Donald Trump and, and all of these things have absolutely nothing to do with 702 by the way. Um, so it's, a, it, it, it's, a, it's a, a giant paranoid non sequitur layered onto a traditional left critique that has some – um, but not a great deal of merit in my view. The problem is if I – and if I sound dismissive of all of this on the merits of the issue, it's because I am actually. My my substantive views of this have hardened over the years. I think this is a stupid issue for us to go through paroxysms every five years to – you know, and put the national security apparatus at risk in order to – uh, you know, satisfy ourselves that we have this comma in the right place over here rather than over here. Um, I think it's pretty stupid relative to some of the other things that we debate. Um, that said, the political coalition that has amassed against 702, when you add these two uh, groups together, is enough to make it impossible to pa- to reauthorize it without substantial changes. And so the question becomes how much can you change this program to satisfy these various ultimately unsatisfiable constituencies without paralyzing the program? Uh, the issue this year boils down to whether Congress can or should impose a warrant requirement for uh, this is going to sound dense and complicated domestic FBI queries of material collected in 702 uh, surveillance uh, abroad of domestic parties. And, you know, it's a real problem. Uh, The administration doesn't talk about this like it's a debt ceiling level crisis. But, uh, you know, for the national security community, it actually is. And it's not really clear how we're going to get it over the finish line.
2: Yeah, I I generally agree with what Ben said. Certainly on on the merits, I do think 702 is useful and it should be continued. And I suspect by hook or by crook, it it will be because I think at some point the national security establishment will do the full court press and start sort of showing enough members of Congress enough information that they will be um, sort of terrified into enacting some sort of reauthorization. I just want to give sort of two more general thoughts. The first is, you know, I, I think this is an interesting case study of of both the sort of benefits and drawbacks of sunset provisions um, in statutes generally and in surveillance statutes and national security statutes in particular, right? You know, if we did not have this five-year sunset, if we didn't have a five-year reauthorization, you know, on the one hand, we would not have the risk of 702 expiring because this odd kind of odd bedfellows political coalition is against it. On the other hand, you know, we would not have the executive branch having to sort of come to the table and be really transparent and be willing to negotiate on more safeguards. You know, I tend to think that it's a it's a trade-off worth making. I'm not sure if, you know, five years is the right call, maybe seven, maybe 10 years. I mean, it does take a, a lot of uh, time and attention um, from, you know, Congress's tiny agenda, um, because, of course, Congress is quite dysfunctional. But I, I do think it's it's worth it, um, even if it does have some disadvantages. The other thing that I would say is, you know, I, I do think the, the warrant, issue is just worth talking about for, for a minute or two, because I, I think it, it illustrates what I find to be a sort of very frustrating element of this debate. So just to expand a little bit on what Ben was saying, the, the way 702 works at an incredibly high level is that instead of the US government getting a warrant to um, search a particular email account or a particular phone number, uh, like it would in an ordinary investigation, uh, instead, it proposes a kind of broad surveillance program that it then goes to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to get authorization on that program. And there are all these questions about whether that really counts as a warrant because it's particularized. But um, what you end up having is um, something that is, I think everyone agrees, less than or at the very least um, less restrictive than your traditional criminal investigation particularized probable cause warrant. But on the other hand, much greater than just, you know, free reign for the government to do uh, whatever it wants and I think the reason that's important to keep in mind is because you know, the posturing from from both sides here, though I, I will admit I am sort of more sympathetic to the government side, often forgets that fact and can get very frustrating. So, you know, on the one hand, the critics of 702 traditionally has been put at the left, but now increasingly this odd... You know, I do like the outpatient wing of the Republican Party. It's, it's a nice way of putting it. They they will say, you know, the Fourth Amendment requires warrants. This isn't a warrant, therefore, this whole thing is is illegal. And if even if it's not illegal, at the very least, if the FBI wants to search within this database f- for domestic queries, it should get a warrant at that stage because it never got a warrant beforehand. And. I find this frustrating because it ignores a couple of important features, such as the fact that the Fourth Amendment does not, in fact, require warrants. Uh, It specifies what warrants have to contain to be warrants, but it never actually requires warrants. And it also ignores the fact that there's a lot between warrants on the one hand and nothing on the other hand. And the 702 authorizations and the the probing nature of that review and the oversight um, from multiple levels, both within the executive branch and also the judiciary, um, is is quite substantial. Um, And so it's not obvious to me that warrants for domestic queries is the right way to go. On the other hand, what the government sometimes says, which is, well, look, you know, in, in no other investigative circumstance do you require investigators to get a warrant to search information they have already lawfully acquired. Therefore, it's ridiculous to even bring up a warrant requirement for domestic queries. I find that kind of frustrating as as well because it ignores, because it ignores the fact that this information was not originally collected according to a traditional understanding of a warrant. And domestic queries on foreign intelligence is incredibly sensitive. And the FBI has screwed up a bunch of times. And, you know, if Congress wants to impose more oversight and procedures, they should be able to do that. Um, so at some point, sort of both sides have to kind of get off their high horses. As both it
0: sides-ism, Alan.
2: it It is a curse. It is a curse. But I've just, I've committed to it. I'm committing to the bit. And I think that is what will ultimately happen. The only other thing I want to say is it's bad that the FBI has been screwing up. I mean, it really yep. is. I mean, there should be, you know, there no amount of errors is is okay. But at the same time, can, we need to really to put this in perspective. This is the most scrutinized program uh, probably not just in the United States, but like in the world when it comes to surveillance and the fact that we have not had major civil rights violations is a remarkable accomplishment, and I think shows that this thing is fundamentally solid and you know everyone, all the kind of left wing critics of this or libertarian critics of this, I just wish they would educate themselves about just how less privacy protecting Europe the supposed utopia is on this, and I think they will come to appreciate. Um, you know, just how well-regulated 702 is. It could be absolutely improved. And I'm happy to have the intelligence community beaten up every five years uh, to do that. But we got to put this into perspective.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's worth noting when we talk about the FBI failures that the agency has really just been tripping over its own feet recently. There have been reports about uh, bureau employees improperly searching names of protesters at uh, both Black Lives Matter protests and January 6th. Both so, sides. you know, there's there's something for everyone. And also it was recently revealed, um, I think, from a unsealed Fisk order that there have been improper backdoor searches of uh, the name of a U.S. senator, a state senator and a state judge. Uh, so, I mean, setting aside the merits, it really just feels like the Bureau just cannot get out of its own way. Um, On this one, which leads me back to a question that uh, Lawfare contributing editor David Chris asked at one point when we were holding an event with with the leader of the National Security Division at DOJ, Matt Olson. Um, And David asked essentially if we were going to have to cut off the FBI finger to save the 702 hand. I think, Ben, I'm, I'm remembering that correctly. Are we moving in that direction? It kind of feels to me like we might be whether that means implementing a warrant requirement or some other kind of restrictions on the Bureau's access?
0: So I don't think the government can or will accept a warrant requirement, at least not in, a, in the form that the left wants it. Uh, whether the government will accept some kind of review of domestic FBI queries that is a, a beyond what it wants – I mean there's something you could finesse there perhaps. But I I think there are two ways to think about the Bureau's compliance problems. One is that we you set up an elaborate uh, system of review in order to catch things and it catches things. And you know, in an environment in which you're doing in some years more than a million queries – you shouldn't be surprised that there is an error rate at some level. That's not to say any of these errors are okay, but you wouldn't expect the the number to be zero, of compliance incidents. Or you should be suspicious if it is zero. Exactly. Uh, the second thing is that you know there are reasons that are not bad for somebody to be the subject of a domestic query. For example, I believe that I was the subject of a domestic query and the reason was that I was – it may not have been under 702 but it was under something because the FBI picked up the phone and called me and warned me that I was the subject of a cybersecurity incident. warned me to batten down the hatches. Now how did they do that? They weren't spying on me. They were spying on somebody who was talking about me. And they came across, you know, it's what we call incidental collection and they picked up the phone and called me a lot of the queries that people are so anxious about are actually done for defensive reasons. You you've you're spying on a bad cybersecurity actor, you want to know who they're talking about. So so you can pick up the phone and warn them. I think we got to be careful. Uh, I do think that there are uh, – that the FBI has not played its hand well. That there are seri- – there have been serious compliance incidents on a repeated basis. And uh, But I don't see how realistically how you're going to lose the ability to do these domestic searches because honestly. Uh, we want them done for a lot of reasons.
3: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of this. The one thing I'll note is that it, it's a tough balancing act. And, it, you know, I, a lot of it comes down to how you think about government and, and your trust in government and it's not necessarily malicious, you know, whether you think the government is right-minded or not, but it's also about government capacity, right? And I will say as a former government official of sorts uh, or government employee and a somebody who thinks being in government is very important and very hard and deserves a lot of respect. I also have some skepticism about self-policing within bureaucracy. You know, I do think that there is just an inclination and when you're in an under-resourced bureaucracy of people who tend to be like-minded at least in sharing institutional interests and professional backgrounds, um, that there is not always a very effective – Um, You're not always very effective at drawing your own lines internally at least where there's not a lot of political buy-in by your leadership and a focus on it and that that makes a lot of these self-policing solutions that fit prominently into the 702 debate uh, among people seeking to reauthorize it kind of problematic. I mean particularly where it's not a clear line rule, right? That's like dictated by congress. Bureaucracies tend to fudge things and they get messy and they don't apply their own standards very effectively. I have no doubt that's what's happening in the FBI and part of the reason you're seeing some of these more problematic queries. And for me, that's why I think some degree of external oversight, which we've already seen from the inspector general's office uh, in certain cases, which we've seen other mechanisms being installed, probably totally appropriate in these sorts of cases. Maybe they should be applied to other agencies as well, maybe having a five-year renewal window is not the way to have uh, you know continued congressional consideration of this. Although, if I'm being honest, maybe it's not the worst one either. Uh, I actually am sympathetic to reauthorization as a tool to encourage you know persistent congressional. Uh, engagement on issues that present very complicated policy
0: questions, right? It's like, the debt ceiling, man. Yeah, I mean,
3: that's the problem, right? Is like the consequences that the Sequestration worked it. out so yeah. well. Now, look, I don't, I actually don't, I think actually probably a 702 lapse would not be quite as immediately devastating as the debt ceiling, uh, but it would be problematic, right? We don't
0: know in either case. We don't really know. Yeah, <laughs> either in case. That's I, what I, we never you find, find drive out. Off a cliff, I also argue
3: you the debt ceiling was not as immediately devastating. So who, who yep. knows guys, exactly?
2: Guys, if if only Doug Burgum were the president, he would not be having this. He could solve
3: this problem. I, I, with his millions and perhaps – and blank slate personality perhaps. Um, you know what I, what I would say here generally though is that I, I think we've seen the Biden administration actually take a step back from this in recent days, right? We saw this presidential intelligence advisory board come forward with like a kind of constrained vision of 702 more so than frankly I was expecting it to go, basically saying we're just going to limit this to national security cases. I have to look back at the report and figure out exactly what the scope is. My sense is that basically means like foreign national security cases. I don't think they're talking about like January 6th, um, frankly, uh, and other domestic terrorism cases. Uh, I think that's part of the political compromise. So I I believe that's the case. And we've already seen White House officials say, well, like this is – it's hard to top – I think this is a quote from Josh Geltzer who was on the podcast the other day and is kind of the point person at the White House and and someone we all know. And uh, I have great respect for Josh uh, and I've known him for decades at this point or at least over a decade. You know, he said basically, this is hard to top as a guide for us working on these issues. So the Biden administration's made its compromise. Like this is what 702 is probably going to look like moving forward, at least as a starting new bargaining position. And it's a much more constrained vision of 702, which I do think you know raises this question: saying like, what do we re- what do we really need it for? Like, like what what was the actual scope of the program, and what is its most important applications, and and why is it only now getting scaled back to those? It's a hard question to answer and balance these things and you have to have these debates to reach it. So I'm not sure these debates are necessarily bad. Maybe 702 is not the only place we should have it. But you know, I, I'm not convinced that as painful as these conversations can't be, they don't produce a
0: better outcome at the end. So I am uh, not convinced of that either. I do think brinksmanship is a terrible way to make policy in general. And uh, more to the point, I think the fact that we have these sunset provisions in some areas but others causes us to have disproportionate focus on the areas that come up for renewal to the exclusion of areas that everybody gets to take for granted. And so if you were going to ask what the biggest FBI civil liberties issues posed these days are – I don't think anybody could look you in the eye and say domestic queries of the 702 database and yet that's what we focus on because it comes up and that's a a warping of of policy priorities because somebody can play brinksmanship with this.
4: Well— The letter H is the eighth letter in the alphabet, and that is one more than the seventh letter in the alphabet, which is the same number that starts 702. And that's my transition to talk about Hunter Biden.
3: This is
2: one
4: episode of this podcast my toddler
2: would love. (laughs) This is bringing the count. This episode is brought to you by the letter H and the number seven. That's
4: right. Um, So Republicans have uh, stepped up their attacks on Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, recently. uh, They believe that they have found, uh, it seems like a number of whistleblowers, some of whom are perhaps more reliable than others, testifying about variously government interference in the tax and gun case against Hunter Biden, and also now testifying that Joe Biden had some level of involvement in his son's business enterprises, which the president had previously denied. Um, So, Ben, you have been looking into this as a kind of exercise in fairness um, on the grounds that, you know, if Uh, Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Trump or Ivanka were to face some kind of allegation that involved their father's conduct while he was president. We would take a look at that. Um, What do you make of these allegations? Is there anything here?
0: Let's start with the fact that a lot of the obsessive attention to Hunter Biden is a ghoulish sort of persecution of somebody who has, you know, some drug problems uh who's had a troubled life and uh who's really didn't choose to be a public figure and that there's something awful about it and you know marjorie taylor green uh releasing pictures uh of hunter biden on the floor of the house is i mean there's something really disgusting about a lot of it uh that said uh hunter biden you know was a person who was engaged in a kind of classic washington treating on famous names thing he does appear to have evaded taxes in the course of doing it and his access point for a lot of the work that he did with some uh, you know pretty sleazy overseas enterprises is the fact that he was the son of the vice president uh, by the way, all of this stuff is uh, – involves activity that took place you know, eight years ago or more um, and so mostly I have tried to ignore it all on the theory that uh, none of it is relevant to anything I think about unless and until Hunter Biden runs for office at which point I will not vote for him because he's engaged in all kinds of sleazy activity. Uh, That said, there was a story in the New York Post the other day uh, and that was – I thought a little bit – changed the picture and the story reflected the fact that his uh, one-time business partner was going to testify, which then happened this past Monday uh, before the relevant congressional uh, committee, that Joe Biden – Uh, who was uh, again then vice president, that Hunter Biden had called him repeatedly uh, dozens of times, 20 times to sort of show off to business partners or prospective business partners basically to show his access. Is this the biggest scandal in the world? No. Is this a – you know – A lot of whataboutism on the part of the right-wing political and media ecosystem, yes. Is it a good thing for Joe Biden to be taking calls from his son who is using those calls to sort of show off before overseas businesses that he's then soliciting um, consulting business from? No, and I think Joe Biden probably erred in – Allowing his son to use him that way. Is there any evidence that Joe Biden was a party to any deal that Hunter Biden was doing um, or that he himself benefited from them? Uh, I have not seen anything that qualifies remotely as evidence of that. And so I think, you know, I think what you can say about it is that Biden is certainly guilty – appears to be guilty of having taken calls from his son. Uh, Most people I think are not going to see that as the biggest problem in the history of the world. But the sleazier Hunter Biden's activities look and some of them look pretty unpleasant. And the more you can show that Joe Biden was adjacent to them, the more it will rub off on him at least a little bit. Uh, I will say that there is a step that the republicans who are pushing this have really missed, which is to show that there was anything actually illegal or improper about any of the Hunter Biden deals themselves. Uh, Hunter Biden is accused of not having paid taxes on uh, about a million dollars of, recip- of, of, the, of, of the proceeds of those deals. And there has been a kind of whisper that there may have been some Farah problem with those deals. But he was never accused of that um, despite the – a five-year investigation of the matter both under this administration and by the previous administration. And so, you know, I think what Joe Biden stands accused of is not having put enough Distance between himself and deals that appear not to have been illegal but are are sort of unsightly and involve Ukrainian oligarchs and Chinese uh, tycoons. that's as best as I can do in putting it together. I do think the suggestion that a lot of you know is getting a lot of currency on Fox News right now that Joe Biden has been lying about this appears to be false. His previous statement was I've I have nothing to do with and I've I've had nothing to do with uh with my son's businesses. And it having been revealed that he took some phone calls, perhaps wittingly, perhaps unwittingly, uh, while his son was meeting from people, he has slightly modified that to I've never really discussed my son's business deals. I don't see that as a very big change. I don't think it looks great for Joe Biden but I don't think there's a big problem here either and uh, since the Republicans in the House seem uh, – at least some of them seem bent on, on using it as the basis of an impeachment inquiry. I think we should you know, evaluate it fairly and I, I come to the conclusion at least so far that it's you know not a great look but not the biggest problem in the history of the world.
3: I, I – I, Almost entirely agree with your assessment, Ben. Um, You know the the one aspect of this I do think it's lost, and frankly, I think it's a a weak point in the armor that in attacks on Biden uh, over this um, is that I think some of this, you know, Hunter's behavior obviously some of it is is genuinely problematic, and Biden's willingness to maybe not be draw a harder line on certain parts of it, particularly the phone calls, particularly if there were cases where he he knew this was in the context of a business partnership, although it's not clear that that's the case, would be a problem. But, you know, there's this critique saying, well, why is Biden still bringing Hunter around on international trips? Why is Biden still keeping him so close, so visible? I think the fundamental aspect is that Joe Biden is still a human being. And his son, it's his son. It's his only surviving son. Uh, at this point, having lost, uh, you know, his Beau Biden uh, to, to cancer a few years ago. And his son has a health problem. Uh, you know, that's the important part of this. He, his son has made some bad choices and maybe not all of them can be entirely attributed to substance abuse and mental health, but he has real substance abuse and mental health problems. And I think the key point here is that Biden's made a decision to say, that says, it's going to hurt me politically. I'm, I'm sure this will. It would be easier if Hunter were, you know, a silent in the background, kind of like Bill Clinton's problematic brother was, right? And like just showed up periodically and wasn't as visibly close to the president. But he's not willing to do that. And I, I, I suspect it's because he thinks it's important to, you know, his family. And we saw that recently where it was very good and, and you know, heartening, I think, to see uh, Joe Biden and Joe Biden acknowledge Hunter's, um, you know, the daughter he had out of wedlock, that evidently he's never met and they've never met and say that they want to meet her. That's a politically problematic thing for them. It's going to be probably personally awkward because, uh, you know, the mother and her family are I think kind of associated with the politically conservative bent uh, and it's awkward because of the the past history. But they are proactively saying this is part of our family and we need to reach out to it and political costs be damned. And I actually think people will find that very sympathetic. And deal with it because families are complicated, and people have dealt with things like mental health and substance abuse. And this is a very compassionate way to approach it. And I think that's a counter narrative that is probably going to get pulled out at some point during the campaign. And I find it really compelling. Um, and it's part of the reason why I don't think these attacks in the end are going to stick the way folks on the right think
2: they might. Yeah. So two two quick things and and uh, on on what Ben and, and Scott are saying, which I again generally uh, fully agree with. The first is that I think this is just another example of how when you're evaluating whether or not a president did something right or wrong, right? You're not just evaluating specific actions. You're also ultimately making a character judgment on them. And both in terms of, you know, how the conduct fits into what you think about their character and also sort of what the character says about how you think the conduct actually went down. And I think here, you know, despite the attempt of Republicans to sort of make all sorts of equivalences between the Trump family's shady dealings and the Biden family's shady dealings, I think what's notable here is that, you know, with the Trump family, you had just decades of shadiness that went sort of through when Trump was president, whereas here you you have, again, I think a very bad situation and probably some lapse of judgment on, on Joe Biden's part. But it doesn't fit into a broader narrative of Joe Biden sort of as like a corrupt sleazeball. You know, And and not only that, but you do have this countervailing force and you can explain a lot of it as, as Scott put it, Joe Biden trying to be a father and making hard choices and maybe not always making the best choices there. And so this is why I sort of I suspect that, you know, why I personally am not particularly concerned about the Hunter Biden scandal on the merits with respect to what I think of the Biden presidency and why I suspect it's also ultimately not going to be as big of a political issue as certainly the Republicans hope it will be. So that's the first thing. The second thing I wanted to say is, though. At the same time, I, I am a little disappointed in how the news media has been covering this. I, I do think that th- there, there has been some slow walking of this by news outlets that, um, you know, mainstream news outlets that I, I would have expected to be a little more on top of this. My worry is that this is becoming the anti-Hillary Clinton email story, which is to say the news media is correctly worried about taking a story and both sides it to a point where you lose all perspective and suddenly Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow American democracy, well, sure, he did that, but Hunter Biden, I mean, that's really bad too, which is sort of kind of what happened in um, 2016. And, and while I, I understand the impulse to avoid that, I, I think that there's a, a danger of overcorrecting um, and of letting the narrative be driven by the Fox news of the world. And, you know, I, I don't know how to how to solve that problem. But, uh, you know, I do think it is it is there and, and the news media has to be sort of quite conscious of that.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, with the following proviso. You know, as a general matter, the press doesn't and shouldn't cover the travails of, you know, private people. And to the extent that Hunter Biden is somebody who, you know, whose conduct does not Reflect the conduct of his father. Uh, He's not a government official. He's not a uh, you know if if, if the press doesn't really cover Tiffany Trump either, right? And uh, it it covers Don Jr. because he runs his father's company. It covers Ivanka because and Jared because they were serving in the White House. But presidents' kids like there should be a certain. Uh, respect for you know, their privacy as a general matter. There are limits to that, of course. And so I think part of the reticence is what you describe, a sort of anti-Hillary Clinton thing. But part of it is also a sense that there isn't really a story here unless and until it involves Joe Biden's conduct. And that is the big weak spot of the story as a story. If If the question is, has Hunter Biden done things that are not great? The answer is sure. If the question is, has Joe Biden committed, like, you know, you, you turn on Fox News and you hear the phrase Biden crime family a lot, you know, that there is not a lot of evidence of that or any evidence of that. And so I, I think part of the problem reflects an actual gap in the story that there really isn't a lot of evidence that Joe Biden has done anything wrong here.
3: Well, folks, that is all the time we have to discuss for today. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us today?
2: So I have yet another entry in my national security theme to mass media consumption, the 2021 film Operation Mincemeat from Netflix, uh, which is a fabulous movie with uh, Colin Firth. Uh, among others, who who will forever be Mr. Darcy in my heart, um, obviously. Um, It is based on a a true story of uh, incredible deception that the British government played on uh, Hitler in World War II when using a dead body washed up on the shore of Spain. It uh, convinced Hitler that the Allies were going to invade Greece when in fact they were going to invade Sicily. Uh, It is generally considered the greatest deception in basically military history, and it's just a really interesting, fun movie uh, about it. Um, you know, not, not, I think, like a f- spectacular work of art, but a wonderful way to spend two hours while watching popcorn. Fair.
3: I think a lot of British cinema now is just dedicated to find op- opportunities to put that man in a double-breasted period <laughs> era suit. But, you know, God, looks he, looks, he
2: looks good, man. He, he looks good. He's, very, he's aged in a very distinguished way. I'm a big, I'm a big I'm a good Colin Firth guy. <laughs>
3: Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
4: I do not have anything to do with Colin Firth. I went to Disneyland for the first time on Friday. It was very hot. There were a lot of people. Um, I still don't like roller coasters. But you know what was great was the Star Wars section. Uh, There is a ride. You are like in part of a battle between the Resistance and the First Order. I do not really like the new trilogy except for The Last Jedi, which I will defend to the death. But this ride, even though the wait was like an hour and a half, was cool as hell, and I highly recommend it. I experienced a sense of childlike wonder that made me recall what it was like to watch the original Star Wars for the first time, and it was a lot of fun.
3: All right. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am uh, sharing a really charming and interesting documentary my wife and I picked up randomly this weekend uh, I can't recommend enough called The Thief Collector. It is about an unlikely estate sale that went awry and led to uh, a criminal conspiracy that spanned decades and involves uh, a lot of... Weird creative writing that is enacted by, among other talented actors, Glenn Howerton of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame, uh, often in a a vaguely painted on pencil mustache. And it starts very light and interesting as it sounds. And then it gets surprisingly dark and actually delves in some really interesting places of psychology um, where certain these people are involved in what is a very strange true-to-life mystery that still is not completely solved. It was utterly entrancing and interesting and one of the more entertaining documentaries I have seen. Uh, I now want to go track down the filmmakers' uh, other works um, because I was so enchanted by how it was put together. It was visually quite stunning as well because all in the American Southwest, so lots of like really compelling kind of still frame shots and landscape shots. So highly recommend that, The Thief Collector, uh, check it out on wherever you get your videos. I think I saw it on Prime, but it's out there.
0: And Ben, what do you have for us this week? Years ago and I don't remember what prompted it, I bought a glowing orb and uh, I think it may have been prompted by um, uh, that weird incident in Saudi Arabia when Donald Trump uh, and uh, President Sisi and the king of Saudi Arabia all pressed on a glowing orb together and launched a thing. Uh, But I'm not sure. I just – I found it in a catalog and I decided my office at Lawfare and Brookings needed a glowing orb and I bought the glowing orb and it almost immediately malfunctioned. Uh, And so when you would turn it on, it wouldn't turn on. But then apropos of nothing, sometime you would be sitting there and the orb would start glowing. And this became a bit of a joke between Quinta and me. When she walked into my office one day and said the orb is glowing and I said something like that means Bob Mueller is about to bring an indictment and then he did. And so Quinta and I started ascribing mystical powers to the glowing orb uh, that uh, whenever it glowed, it meant that there was action in the Mueller investigation and if you ignored – the many false positives of the glowing orb, it had a quite a record in this regard, especially because the glowing orb glowed a lot and Mueller was doing a lot of things. And if you were kind of generous about the time frame, the glowing orb would glow, and then, you know, a week later something would happen in the Mueller investigation and you'd be in the pink. Uh, This joke outlived its amusingness by many years (laughs) except that Quinta and I still seem to find it funny. Uh, So eventually the the original glowing orb died completely and I replaced it with a new glowing orb that actually works. And yesterday I lit the glowing orb and I put it on top of the completed lawfare puzzle and it sat there for much of the day glowing – Uh, And uh, I think captured the spirit of the day and is clearly responsible for the events of the later part of the day. And somewhere, somehow, Bob
3: Mueller found his TV remote controller. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) (laughs) The investigation complete. And now we know. Well, on that mystical note, we will have to close this week's episode. But this has been Rational Security, which is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So – be sure to visit our homepage at lawfaremedia.org, our new web address, for links to past episodes, for show notes, for our written content and the written content of other Lawfare contributors. And while you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon.com slash Lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.